Let's take our Bibles. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Our series has been about uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphians living in Laodicea. And uh, we won't take time to go into all that. Suffice it to say, uh, the scripture indicates that we are in the last days uh, with uh, all of the, the craziness that's gone on and the ramp up of, uh, of d- demonic activity. And we can see that. And so the Laodicean age is the last age before the rapture. And yet it is not a requirement to be a Laodicean. And we are seeking to be like the Philadelphian church in Revelation chapter 2 instead of the Laodicean church. And so we looked last week about Caleb and how Caleb was an unusual man, a man in the minority. He lived in the midst of an entire generation that turned from God. And it was, simple, it was only he and one other man that made the decision to, to stay faithful, follow God, and he was blessed by God. He had another spirit. This week, we're going to look at the opposite of that. What was the majority spirit in this time frame? And the title of this is Rebellion Destroys Victory. Rebellion Destroys Victory. Philadelphians living in Laodicea. We need to know that rebellion destroys victory. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. The Lord is recapping what took place in Numbers here in the second giving of the law. And uh, Moses is talking about, uh, here's what took place. Here's a recap of the story. And we'll start in verse 19. And Deuteronomy 1, 19. And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which ye saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. All right, so what was their guide in leaving Horeb? What was the thing that guided them to leave Horeb? The Lord. What did he use? In the verse, there it is. What, what was, what was the, the training wheels that helped them get to where they were supposed to go? Notice, all yes, that's, these are good answers, but notice, very, very distinct phrase, as the Lord our God commanded us. You see, the Lord is using His command to guide them where they're supposed to go. Now, we sometimes jump over that because we think, oh, the Lord God, He's always commanding us something. He's always throwing something out there, and we got the Bible, and let's obey it. But this is very important, because watch what the next verse says. And I said unto you, ye are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Now, they only were here because God had commanded them. And the Lord was now going to give them this land. And what does he say? I'm setting it before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee. Fear not, neither be discouraged. All right. So we've got to get this hammered down in our minds first that the command of the Lord is what we are to follow. What God says, that's what we're to do. This is so basic, we don't even do it. Look at verse 22. And you came near, this is Moses speaking, you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, we will send men before us. 
and they shall search us out the land and bring us word again by what way we must go up. Now we know in, in numbers that the, that Moses said, Hey, choose somebody out from all the tribes and, and, and I'll send them in there. So they choose them. But here it indicates that they were eager to do it and ready to do it. They said, we will send men before us. We are prepared to obey the Lord God. And what are they going to do? They're going to go in there. They're going to find out what the land is like, what the people are like, and so forth. And verse 23, And the saying pleased me well, and I took 12 men of you, one of a tribe. How many, men, how many people in a jury, typically? 12 people. That's because of, uh, of the Bible. Um, the, the idea of the 12 apostles in Christ uh, judging, you know, uh, be, being in judgment. And uh, it comes from the Word of God, the 12-person jury. And this is kind of like a traveling jury. They're going in on a field trip, and they're going to check out the promised land and come back and report to the court and say, here's, here's what's up over there. All right, they took 12 men, one of a tribe, and they turned and went, verse 24, they turned and went up into the mountain and came under the valley of Eshkol, uh, which means a cluster, and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us. Instead of it being fruit of the land in their hand like this, it was fruit of the land in their hands like this. They're carrying these gigantic grapes, right? So they're coming down. And it says, they brought it down on us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Notwithstanding. Okay, time out. There shouldn't be any notwithstanding. Why? Because it is a good land and the Lord is giving it to us. He already gave it to us. He not only gave it to us, he commanded for us to take it. All right. So that's should have been in the, that should have been the end, but that's not verse 26, notwithstanding ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God. The commandment of the Lord your God. Where's that found? Verse 21. Go up and possess it. As the Lord thy God of thy fathers hath said. He said, go up. And they said, we are not going to go up. Rebellion. We're going to talk about rebellion tonight. Now, I don't know about you. I don't even like the word rebellion. There's something about it that just bothers me. Maybe because it's connected with the first times that I heard it as a child. I have memories of things connected with that word. And, uh, and, 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 and that's, that's as it should be. But notice in verse number 26, rebellion is when you decide that there is something that you will not do. It says there, notwithstanding, ye would not go up. God told me to. I am not going to do it. If, if you have an employee who chooses which of your directions to follow, that employee is not the employee. That employee is the boss. Let me say it what, what, maybe another way. If you have an employee who decides what they will or will not follow of your directions, that employee is no longer the employee. That employee is the boss. You are now following the direction of your employee, if you're the boss. 
If a person is able to decide what they will or will not do, then they're the, per- they're the one that's actually in charge. Listen to what C.H. Burton said. He said, if you, dear brother, shall say concerning the Lord's will, I will do this and I will not do that, you do, in fact, make yourself master. The spirit of rebellion is in you. You have already erred and strayed from your Lord's ways and set up the standard of revolt. And it's important to understand this because this is the very first, this is the very first point tonight, is that rebellion is the refusal to accept God's direction. Rebellion is refusing to accept God's direction. So let me give you some etymology. To rebel is to rise up against, to be insubordinate, to make war against anything deemed oppressive. To make war against anything deemed oppressive. Your children can rebel against you and think that you're a tyrant, that you are an overlord, because they, they don't want to do what you tell them to do. But it's important to remember as the leader that just because your child doesn't like what you told them to do, they don't get to determine whether or not you're in charge. And they don't get to determine whether or not you are oppressive. Many times rebellion is just someone who says, I, I don't like the way that you are. If you were a good authority, if you were a good boss, you would let me do what I want to do. How many of you have tried that with employees and realized it doesn't work? It doesn't work. The word uh, rebel as an adjective is resisting an established or rightful government or law, insurrectionist, lawless, stubborn, obstinate, rebellious, insurgent. And it comes from re and belar. So remember, uh, they called those big mansions down there in the south, the antebellum mansions. Have you heard that? That's before the war. Bellum as in war. So rebellion is, uh, it's making war against something. Rebellion is making war. But the thing that's interesting about rebellion is it often is couched in, it can be couched or it can include points of obedience, points of uh, spirituality. And we'll see that here in a little bit. It can, it comes, they, they can come together in tandem. And that's the reason why it doesn't always, we don't think that it's rebellion. Because here, they're, they're not saying, we don't want you as our God any longer. We're done with you. No, they had followed God. In fact, they, they said, Let, are we supposed to go up and check it out? Let's go check it out. We'll take 10, 12 guys. We'll go up there and we'll, hey, this is going to be great. And they come back and like, man, this is awesome. Except we're just, we're not going up. God's great and he does good things, but he's just a little too far advanced for us. He's, he, he's asking too much, if you know what I mean. So we're not going to go and do that. All right. And, and so it reminds us of Philadelphians living in Laodicea. The, Laodice, the word Laodicea means what? The rights of the people. Laos, right? The, as in the laity we call them. The people. And Decea. It is that which they, they, they demand. They're right. Laodicea. It is the rights of the people. Here we see these people saying, we will not go up. And the answer is not 
And the reason is not because God is bad, right? They're not saying God is bad, so we're not going to go up. They're not, they're not even saying God has mistreated us to this point. They're simply saying we don't agree with this, God. Everything else is fine, but this is a problem. It, it, it's, like the, it's like the guy, the little boy who uh, the parents were very concerned about him because since he was a child up to the age of 10 years old, he never said a word. Never said a word. And uh, they thought perhaps it was a, a, some type of a, a speech impediment that he had or perhaps it was a cognitive disability. They didn't know for sure. And they loved him and raised him the best they could, but he never said a word until one morning at breakfast. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he said, toast is burnt. And they said, this is amazing. And they cried tears of joy and they held him tightly. And they said, why haven't you said anything up till now? He said, everything was okay up till now. Right? And that's the way it is in our Christian lives. Everything's okay up till now. And then suddenly God asks us of something. And you know what we do? We have a lot of reasons why he shouldn't even be asking this of us. This is not even something that the God that I know. You ever heard someone say that? (laughs) There is no such thing as the God that you know, as opposed to the God that I know. If we're talking about actual facts now, experientially, maybe you've experienced things with God. That's a different story. But those experiences never trump the Bible. And the Bible is where we know about God. So when someone says, I just can't understand why God would. Well, you might search the scripture to see if God did first. And if God did, there's a good chance he would. That, that always, God is really good at reminding us that he's God and we're not. He's really good at that. He's really good at being God, isn't he? Amen. What does rebellion look like? What does rebellion against God look like? Well, it's refusal to accept God's direction. Hold your place in Deuteronomy there, if you would, and look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you some things that God has given to us. And what's amazing about this to me is that the rebellion was a refusal to believe God could. It was a rebellion to believe that God would bring the victory. Now, you may not think that you're rebellious against God. You might say, you know what, Lord? I'm fine with you. I got no problem with your direction. But if you're talking about a better me, if you're talking about a more victorious me, I'm just here to tell you right now, that old dog ain't going to hunt for long. There ain't no way I can be a better version of myself. I'm not overtly rebelling against you, God. I'm not saying you're not my God. I'm not going to stop reading my Bible. I'm not going to say I'm not going to church. I'm just saying there's certain lines that I know I'm not going to be able to cross. There's certain things I can't do. And and what's amazing to me about the story of the folks that came up to the edge of the promised land and then rebelled against God was that God was trying to bring them victory through battle. He was not trying to destroy them, to obliterate them. He was trying to bless them by challenging them. He's trying to bring them further than they were. And they said, I'm fine where I am. God said, go in, be a better Christian. Be a better mom and dad. Be a better spouse. Be a better neighbor. He said, I'm not smoking, God. I don't know what else you want. I'm not drinking anymore. I don't even cuss anymore. I don't know what else you want from me. See, it's not about what you want from God. It's about what God wants from you. 
Rebellion is saying, God, I don't need to grow anymore. I don't need any further victories. I don't need to tackle that giant. I'm fine right here. God said it's rebellion. Look what God has given to us. He gave them the promised land. Look what he's given us. 2 Peter 1.3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He's called us to glory. Well, I don't need any glory. What if God wants you to have some glory? If God wants you to have some glory, you better get some glory. You know why you don't want glory? Because you don't want anybody looking at your life and realizing that there's nothing there to glorify God about. You know, you look at somebody, and, and you, you, there's somebody in this room right now that you respect and look up to spiritually. All right, You look at them and you say, wow, thank God for that. You know, I guarantee you, if you look up at that person spiritually, that person is not going to say, yeah, you ought to. You know what they're going to say? It's not me, it's the Lord. Okay, well then why, are you, why did you look at them and not up at the ceiling tiles? Because they are reflecting the glory of God in their lives right now. They, they are following God and God is giving them some of his glory to show in the earth. God's called you to glory and to virtue. Not just to be a humble, private Christian that no one ever sees. He wants you to bring him glory and he wants other people to see you doing that. He's called you to it. You see now where, where, where the rebellion starts kicking in? Well, I'm a very quiet, reserved, I don't, a very private person. And I'm not saying you have to carry a sign saying, I follow God. I'm not saying you have to walk around saying, here's a child of God, just bringing him some glory. But people can see it in your life, and you ought to be willing for that. And by the way, there is such a thing as reverse pride. You're so humble that you're proud. There is such a thing as that. Continuing, verse 4. He's called us the glory of virtue, whereby, whereby are given unto us, this, he's given us all these things that pertain to life and godliness. By the way, that's the, the words of God through the knowledge of him that hath called us. Whereby, by the words of God, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be a better person. Well, I guess you would be a better person, but that's not where he stopped. He said, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And he goes on to talk about how you get there. You add to your faith virtue. In other words, you have faith in God. Now you do what you know to do. That's what virtue is. It's the power to do what's right. Jesus perceived that virtue had gone out of him. What was that? The power to heal that woman. Virtue is doing what you know to do. Or stopping what you know to stop. He said, add to your faith virtue, not add to your faith knowledge. Why? Knowledge puffeth up. And a lot of times you end up being an egghead. You know so much Bible, but you don't do anything with it. So do first and then learn more. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. And he continues throughout all this. Watch verse number eight. For if these things, what things? Verses five, six, and seven. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers, we as a church of Christ, we need to leave behind forever this idea that it is a miracle that I bring any fruit forward for God. 
We need to stop thinking that it's some supernatural, unusual, crazy thing that I actually do something with my Christian life. Do you feel fruitful? You ought to be fruitful on a regular basis. Now, we understand we go through times of drought and difficulty, but we also know that's not the Lord's fault, right? Being fruitful is a normal, natural thing. Why? Because you're a partaker of the divine nature. You have the nature of Christ in you. So what is the what kind of fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Listen, that comes in a bunch, and it's easy for you to determine whether or not you're bearing fruit. How's your love, your joy, your peace, your long-suffering, your gentleness, your goodness, faith? It's, it's not choose one of these. They all grow together. It's the fruit of the Spirit. He produces it all. What's awesome about the fruit of the Spirit list there in Galatians chapter 5 is you can tell whether or not you're filled with the Spirit by how much love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness that you have. That's all you have to do is look at that. So here's what you do. You look at the list. Oh, I don't have any joy. Well, I'm not allowing the Holy Spirit to fill me with his words. I need to go back and believe what he said instead of what Fox News said. I need to go back and believe what he said instead of what I feel today. How many realize you are your own worst enemy when it comes to your attitude? You wake up hating yourself. And even if, if it's loving yourself, you're actually hating yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. So what do we do? We wake up and we say, God, here's my list. Love, joy, peace, long, suffering, gentleness, goodness. I'm going to go down and see how I'm doing on that. Well, I don't know what that word means. Well, study it out. Get in the Bible. Study it out. Define the words. Get in there. Lord, here's what love means. And I want to love you. And I want your love flowing through me. And I'm not sure how to do that. Study the words. As he brings those things to mind, the Holy Spirit's going to go, yes. This is what I've been trying to get you to do forever. Yes. I need some joy. And don't become this Enneagram psychologist Christian that says, you know, I think my fruit is more joy. No, it all comes together. And you release your power to the Lord and say, Lord, produce it all in me. Produce it all. And don't tell the Holy Spirit which one you need or don't need. Just let him produce it all in you. He said, if you will do these things, those things will make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. But notice verse 9, but he that lacketh these things, what's that? Actually doing what you know to do in verse 5. Actually learning more to your established regimen of things that you know to do and that you do. If you're not doing those things, you're blind. And you cannot see afar off. So you can't see any distance. You can't see in the future. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You can forget that you're even saved. Wow. By not yielding to the Spirit and doing what he told you to do. By not believing that he's given you the ability to overcome your mom's horrible habits that she put in you. He has given you the ability to overcome your uncle. And, and, and your older brother and sister and your broken home and that horrible situation that happened when you were seven. He's given you a new nature that never experienced those things and yet paid for the result of all the sin in your past. He's given you a nature that has the power to overcome that. Christian life is really simple. It just believe what is absolutely unbelievable. 
That's all, that's all it is. Believe the unbelievable. That's all you have to do to be a Christian. Believe that Jesus Christ loved you enough to die for you, go in the ground and come out. Believe that he wants to live inside of you. Mind blown. How does that even happen? What does, what does that even mean? That's what he said. So you believe the unbelievable. That's how you walk. You know what the Lord wants to tell you? You don't have to believe anything you don't want to believe. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Just do what you like. And guess what? You're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable the rest of your life. But if you will believe the unbelievable, believe what he said over what you feel, guess what you'll have? Victory in Laodicea. Victory. And a lot of wounds and a lot of battles. You may lose a limb, but you're going to have victory. Anybody interested in victory tonight? (laughs) Amen. All right. Bunch of rebels here tonight. All right. Now, look look at he said, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, instead of being blind and forgetting that you're saved... Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Be diligent about it. For if ye do these things, ye shall only fall once or twice. Ye shall never fall. I'm just afraid I'm going to fall. You'll never fall if you do this. You'll never fall. Now, you may fail. You may have faults, but you'll never fall. And then he says, verse 11, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only are you going to have victory here, you're going to have victory there. And you know what's going to happen when you come in? An abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior. You know what that means? It means you're going to really be amazed when you see how amazed they are when you come walking in. You're going to be amazed how the, what the welcome is like. An abundant entrance. Enter into the kingdom. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to christen you. He's going, to, he's going to give you awards and say, hey, take these awards with you while you go rule over uh, Toledo. We're going to rule over cities, right? And, uh, and that's coming. Now, I don't know if anybody would consider that an award. I'm not sure. Uh, to rule over Toledo, but in, in the millennium, it's going to be an amazing city. The Lord's going to get rid of all the weed. Amen. And that'll be a great day. So let's take our Bibles back to chapter 27, uh, chapter one of Deuteronomy, verse 27. So rebellion is the refusal to accept God's direction. God said, do it. I'm not going to do it. And, and what's amazing about this They never said, we will not. What they said was, we cannot. But God said, when you say you cannot, you're saying you will not. It's the will. Isn't that interesting? We hide sometimes behind, oh, I didn't, I didn't say I wouldn't do it, God. I just said, I can't do it. The Lord said it's the same thing. Because when you say you can't, you're not looking at my power, you're looking at your own. And that leads us to uh, verse 27. Deuteronomy 1.27. And ye murmured in your tents. Now this is one of those cool words where the, the word sounds like what it's the definition. Murmur, right? And ye murmured in your tents. You whined, complained, belly ached, whatever you want to say. And said, because the Lord hated us, 
He hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The Lord hates me. If you ever find yourself saying that, you are being very unkind to a very kind God. If you ever say God hates me, that's where I think God's just he, he wants to destroy me. God's trying to destroy you. Do you think he really has to try? Don't you think he could just destroy you? He's really he really wants to, but he, he can't. He, he could kill you if he wanted to. God doesn't hate you. God, why would God hate you if you're in Christ? That's like saying he hates Jesus Christ. Does he hate Christ? No. He turned his back on him one time when he was made sin for us. Since then, this is my beloved son before and after. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. All of the universe and all of time, God the Father has been pleased with his son. If you're in his son, God's pleased with you. Now, he's not pleased with your sin. That needs to be confessed daily, right? Not to be paid for, but for your conscience to acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid for your sin. Yes, your sins are all paid for, but your conscience forgets that. Your conscience is in time. Jesus paid for you before you were ever born. So you need to remind yourself of that and remind God or let God know, yes, I know that I have sinned and I am claiming your blood as the forgiveness for my sin. So he said here, you murmured because the Lord hate us. They wrongfully accuse God. Rebellious people blame God for their misery. When you find yourself blaming God for how you feel, there's a slight smell of rebellion in your heart. I'm trying to manipulate God. Remember what Delilah, how Delilah finally got Samson to tell her the secret of the long hair? You know what she said? She said, if you loved me, you would. You know what she's saying? She's using it as manipulation. I want what I want, and I'm going to accuse you of not loving me. Be careful in your heart when you start accusing God of not loving you. You're manipulating him. You're telling him that you want him to do something that he's unwilling to do, and, and if you, he, he, he doesn't do it, you're, there's a problem. No, there's a problem with you. God loves you. He cares for you. Stop trying to strong arm him. Stop trying to tell him. Don't wrongfully accuse him. That's what they're doing. If the Lord loved us, he, he wouldn't ask us to do this. But he hates us, so he brought us out of the land of Egypt so he could kill us in the land of Canaan. Number three. Look at verse 28. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our heart saying, the people is greater and taller than we. Rebellious people have weak hearts and are easily affected by the crowd. Our brethren have discouraged our heart. Well, your brethren never had the idea of going into Canaan. It was God's idea to take you into Canaan. Listen, if all you do is listen, and listen to other believers and talk with them, and, and, and you know, I, I love to talk. I grew up in a, a large family. Uh, some, of my, some of my best memories are sitting around in the bus, just talking, chewing the fat. And, uh, and you know, but, but occasionally, Dad, he would come through the, he'd come through the bus, and he'd, he would just say, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, and he would walk out. 
You know why? Because you can talk, 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 talk and do nothing but, but, but sit there and feel. And then you start sharing your feelings with one another. And then you start getting stronger in your feelings because, well, she feels it too. Well, she only feels it because she said it and you resonated with it. So now you're resonating with your feelings. And now it has to be true because we both feel it. And let me get, bring somebody else. Don't you think this? Well, I don't know. But, 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 and, and now we're resonating. We get this echo chamber of our feelings. And be careful. Rebellious people listen to the crowd and what they feel rather than thinking for themselves according to what God said. There were two people that thought what God said. They were concerned about that. It was Joshua and Caleb. But 84% of the people said, well, we all think this, so how could we be wrong? It's not just me. It's him. It's her. So we got to be right. Number four. Numbers chapter 13. Uh, let me see here. I've jumped, I jumped the ship somehow. Uh, it, yes, we're going back and forth. But I want you to take your Bibles and go to Numbers 13. Because this does go right along with it. This is uh, right along the, the same lines, but it gives us another view of it. Hold your place there in, in Deuteronomy. We'll come back to that, I think, maybe. Nope, I think that's all. I think we're done. Numbers chapter. Yep. Uh, we will come back. Forgive me. Scatterbrain tonight. Look at uh, Numbers chapter 13. Uh, verse 30. Caleb stilled the people before Moses. This is real time. This is when it's happening. Uh, Deuteronomy is the review of this story. 1330. Caleb stilled the people before Moses. He had a calming power. He said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Here's the point. Rebellious people allow their fear to overrule God's power. Now, it's important for you to get this, because sometimes we think there's nothing wrong with being afraid. Now, if you're afraid of God, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a rebellion in this fear. Remember, the Lord said, they've rebelled against me. But we would look at this verse and say, but you can understand why they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? That there's behind fear, there is a rebellion against God's word. Behind the things that you're afraid of, there is a stubborn will that says, I deserve to be afraid of this. It's my right to be afraid of this one. Nobody can tell me that I shouldn't be afraid. Well, nobody's saying that normal people aren't afraid of that. But when God says, go in and possess the land, and you say, I'm too afraid, we shouldn't have pity on you. We should be alerted to your rebellion. Why? God said to do it, and he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. You say, well, how? who got that? Who could do that? Two guys could. Joshua and Caleb. What? They weren't believing what they saw. They were believing what they saw. 
They saw the word of God. They heard what Moses said. They said, Moses said, here's, here's what God wants. And what did they do? They said, okay, well, let's do what God wants. Oh, that's a big dude. Whew, Lord, you said to do it. Okay, here we go. They weren't stupid. They knew those guys were taller than them, but they weren't trusting their own logic and understanding and their own plan. They were trusting what God said over their fear. Fear has a way of masquerading as God. You say, well, I don't think my fear, I'm not afraid. Okay, well, then is God bigger than it? Well, of course God's bigger than it. Do you trust God instead of that fear? I'm not, I'm not saying that you know you're supposed to. I'm saying, you do you trust God instead of that fear? How do I know? Well, the fear, this is nothing more than the fear of man. I mean, it's literally the fear of big men. The fear of man bringeth a snare. It brought a 40-year wandering in the wilderness snare into the lives of these people. They were trapped for 40 years in the desert after God did all he did to bring them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, up to the door of Canaan. They're about to go into victory, but they won't go in. Why? Because of people. Because of people. What in your life are you holding back from because you're afraid that people will condemn you, cut you down, make fun of you. You're afraid of being a more victorious person in Christ, but you don't do it. By the way, guys, that's why we got to be very careful that we don't criticize, critique, cut down other believers that are trying the best that they can. Because they might be standing on the edge of Canaan and you're looking at them going, well, I don't know why you, 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 just, you don't even know what you're saying. You're not intending to be hurtful. But people are, we're all bumping up against the land of Canaan all the time, but we are afraid. We're afraid of being who God made us to be. We're afraid of letting God's power fill us and walk in. Why? Because I can tell you this, again, referencing my childhood, you are supposed to be who you are supposed to be in everybody else's minds. Why? It makes it easier for them to categorize you. I'm number seven of 10, right? You know, when you live a certain time, your spouse could be, this is who that person is. I know you. And you get used to wearing that label. And if you ever act differently than that label, it makes them feel uncomfortable. So they critique you. They cut you down. They start saying things like, who, what, what, what are you doing? What, what, are, what, what is this act? Are you pretending to be someone else? No, I was just reading my Bible. So you think you're so spiritual now? Okay, give them time to read the Bible. Little things like that can really discourage the hearts of God's people because they're afraid of what other people do. But here, listen, if people cut you down, you're not a victim here. You don't get an award because you're trusting in that person more than you're trusting in what God told you to do. The fear of man is what kept them from going into the promised land. You say, well, people criticize me and my, my, my wife doesn't believe in my spiritual leadership or my husband doesn't think that I'm really trying. Okay, that may be true. It may not be true. You don't know that. You can't get in their brain and understand that. But I can tell you this. You know what God told you to do. So trust in what God told you to do, even if no one believes you. You believe God and do what's right, even if everybody in the church or everybody in your circle criticizes you and looks down on you and you feel weird. Now, I did not say, do whatever your heart tells you and let everybody pick up the pieces. That is not what I said. That's what Disney says, right? Disney's the one that tells you, you're, you're a girl, but you can fight as a man in the army, you know, Mulan. 
they tried playing that movie in China and they were like, uh, no, we don't do that. Right? Hey, listen, I'm not telling you to be whatever's in your heart. I'm telling you, be what God said. What God said. And don't cherry pick the Bible, please. Laodiceans, you're going to get drunk on that. Stop cherry picking the Bible to do what you want. Get it rightly divided, compare spiritual things with spiritual, and understand this is the will of God. I've got it triangulated. I've got five verses that say, this is what God says I'm supposed to be. And so I'm going to do it. You know, if we, were, if we were more concerned about what we were supposed to be than where we were supposed to go, we'd be a lot happier as a Christian. What the scripture says you're supposed to be, just do it. Right? Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. You know, that's the will of God for you, if you're looking for the will of God. All right. Um, let's continue here, if I can find half of my place. Ah, yes. The fear of man bringeth a snare. Remember what he said in 1 John 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Okay, so when you want to do something for God, and you get afraid so you stop, it's because you don't love God enough. When you love God enough, when you love God more than you love other people, you will follow through without fear. It'll push that fear out of the way, and you'll do what's right. That's what, it, that's what he's saying. Perfect love casteth out fear. Remember what he said, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So a rebellious person says, no, but I'm afraid, so I can't. So I, the Lord says, no, you're afraid, so you won't. There's a difference. You certainly can, but it's going to cost you something. It's going to hurt. God wants you to change how you interact with your kids. It's going to hurt. Why? Because your kids are your kids. They're an unusual brand of human. It's going to cost you something to change how you interact with your neighbor, with your boss at work. Why? Because you've made your bed and now you think you have to lie in it. But you want to move forward for God and be different with people. And so you're saying, God, help me be different. It's going to cost you something. It's going to, it's going to hurt. Rebellious people allow their fear to overrule God's power. Now let's take our Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. So you're already in 30, 13, 33. And just beyond this, they said, we're not going to do it, right? We're not going up. It leads to great grief. Verse 1, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured, there it is, but watch, against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? You ever have suicidal thoughts? Be careful. It could be rebellion. They said, I wish, I was, wish we had died. I wish I was dead. Well, maybe you just want control, and you can't control things, so you just want to die and be done with it all. I'll show them. I'll prove it to them. I can't fix it. I can't figure it out, so I'll just kill myself. Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about stuff in church until somebody kills themselves. But listen, it's, it, from what I understand about suicide, it is ultimate despair. And despair is a lack of belief that there's any hope. All right. Now, I'm not saying there's no pity to be had there. I'm not saying we shouldn't care for them and love them and comfort them. But I am saying the person who is committing suicide, if it's properly suicide, they are making the choice to end their life. 
And it's way down in the midst of a bunch of spider webs and crazy doubts and shadows, and it's hard to sort it all out. But if you get down to it, there's something under there that refuses to believe God. Refuses to believe God. And you can say, oh, no, I believe in God. Yeah, but you don't believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You don't believe that God has anything to do with you or wants to change you. And if you've allowed yourself a habit of years and years and years and years, you can know what's right and still put a gun to your head. Because you refuse to believe God over your feelings. That's what they said here. Now, it was just momentary. And sometimes people say, I'm going to kill myself just for effect. And that's what this was here. Wish we had died in the wilderness. Wish we had died. You know, whatever. Okay. Verse 3, and now they question the Lord. They said, wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? Just forget about the, you know, the whips and the chains and forget about the starvation and the hot, long 14-hour shifts in the sun. Just forget all about that. Let's just go back. It'll be better than sitting here right on the, on the, uh, on the eve of the, the land of milk and honey, right? Their, their minds are messed up. They said, they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Now, you'll notice in verse 2 and in verse 4, the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And then in verse 4, they said, let us make a captain. Here's the point. Rebellious people seek to be their own authority. Now, Numbers chapter 14 is bookended by rebellion. Go, go to chapter 13. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Right before this, chapter 12, look at verse 1. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. And the Holy Spirit puts in there, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? You see, the rebellion here is that, okay, so you're an authority, but we're an authority too. Rebellion is, is, is not anarchy. It's not saying no one should be in charge. It's saying that I should also be in charge. You see, here in, in Numbers chapter 14, the men are saying, we can't do it. And since we can't do it, we're not going with you. Now, we're, so that, what that means is this. You can, Moses, if you, if you want to send Joshua and Caleb in there on a suicide mission and, and just kill themselves like a kamikaze, then that's fine. But we're just saying we have our own ideas. We, we have our own concept that we think would probably be a better, more logical concept. And that's what exactly what, what Miriam said. It, you notice there that it was Miriam and Aaron. What, what, what Aaron gets his come up, it's because in chapter 14, it's the people speaking against Moses and Aaron. You see, a, a rebel is just looking to have things his or her own way. And they want to say, well, I disagree with your decision. I disagree with your leadership. I disagree with, with what you're trying to do, but I've got nothing against you. I just want to do my own thing, but it's rebellion. It's rebellion. Notice, They said in verse 2 of Numbers 12, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? You see, the problem they had was the exclusivity of leadership. 
it was, it was uh, Harry S. Truman that came up with the statement, the buck stops here. We're not going to continue passing the responsibility. I own the responsibility. I'm going to hold on to it. And he did. And he stood up against some pretty powerful people, like Douglas, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, so what did he He's saying, I own the responsibility. And when, when Moses was put in charge, he was put in charge by the Lord. And the Lord is the one that said, here's what I want. And, and, and notice here, the Lord is standing by when Miriam comes up and says, and Miriam and Aaron come up and say, who put you in charge? You think you're the only one who hears from God? You think you're the only one that, that, that God can speak through? And it says, the Lord heard it. And he goes on and he brings leprosy into Miriam's life. Now take your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Look at verse number 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men... And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You see, rebellious people seek to be their own authority, but they get confused about who is ultimately in charge. They bring it down to the level of human and they say, you're no different than I am, man. You put your pants on the same way I do. You suck oxygen like I do. You ain't nothing special. And from a human standpoint, that's exactly right. But I can tell you this, just because you're a human doesn't mean that you're the authority. But a rebel says, oh, yes, it does mean that. Now, you may have had tyrants as bosses. You may have had an overbearing, dictatorial father or husband. You might have had the worst kind of leaders. Or, here's another possibility, you might have been a rebel. You might have been a rebel against God-ordained authority. And you say, well, 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 who's to say? Well, God's to say. God's to say. You see, the amazing thing that we have as, as, as the priesthood of the believer is that we have the, the privilege, we have the privilege, as far as a, a church is concerned, we have the privilege of choosing our authority. But we need to be very careful when we say that is no longer my authority. We need to be very careful of that. Now, You need to be very careful. God gives you the ability to choose your authority, ladies, when it comes to getting married. But you need to be very careful when you decide that you no longer want that authority. Children don't have an opportunity of choosing their authority. They're born into it. Children, obey your parents. Listen, you don't need to earn the right to tell your kids what to do. You have it. You have it. I didn't say you have the right to destroy and abuse your children. That's not what I said. I said you have the right to tell your children what to do and to follow through and make sure that they do it. And they need that. It would be a great gift to them for their future if if they learn how to do that. But unless we get this understanding down of rebellion against authority, we're going to be living in constant wilderness Christianity, wandering around. God didn't kill them for this rebellion, by the way. 
He allowed them to die mercifully over 40 years, never having entered into the promised land. Do you want, do you want to, to be miserable? If you want to be miserable, be a rebel. Every time you see the, the police say, oh, a bunch of pigs. Every time you think of a government you know, leader that's not of your stripe, oh, it's not mine. Be a rebel. Push back, yell, scream, throw a fit, pound your fist. God will let you die unhappy. He'll let you die. He's not going to kill you and strike you dead. He didn't these people, and he had good reason to. He was about to. But that leads us to Numbers chapter 14. Verse number 5. Numbers 14, 5. God gives rebels someone to point out their rebellion. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. I mean, these guys were serious about it. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through it to search it is an exceedingly, exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us. A land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Thank God for people who stand in our way. I thank God for my, my father standing in my way as a teenager, saying, don't be a rebel. He helped me. To, to, I can never repay that debt. He stood in the gap and said, stop. You're going to go over the cliff. God gives you people in your life to say, stop. And if you use your brain, you'll listen to them. They care about you. Here's the dirty little secret. They're trying to make you a better person. God's trying to bring you into the promised land. And yet, what do they say? Verse verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. Shut them up. People get violent. They get weird when they get rebellious. They get illogical. They don't make sense. They feel. They don't think. They don't pray. Stone them! Stone them! And watch. The Lord's always there. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of congregation. We're going to close tonight by looking at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. When Stephen gave God's last, best attempt at salvaging the nation of Israel as the kingdom of heaven for the time being, he is preaching, and he's, he's preaching about these people in Numbers chapter 14. And he says in Acts 7, verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You're the betrayer and the murderer of Jesus Christ, just like your fathers were of the prophets. 
Just like in Numbers chapter 14, they were going to pick up stones and they were going to stone Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Aaron, the prophets. They were going to kill them. Why? Because they didn't want to go down the road that they were being told that God wanted them to go down. God said, here is the one that you crucified and slain. He has made Lord and Christ, the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. Like him or hate him, he's the Messiah. And you're going to have to deal with him. And they said, oh yeah, watch this. Look what they did. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they ran up and bit him. Certainly they were yelling things. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw what? The glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They had a problem because their ears were uncircumcised in verse 51. They stopped their ears and said, We don't want to hear it from you anymore. And they ran upon them with one accord. There's your unity right there. They all got together and said, Let's kill the preacher. Let's kill dad. Let's kill the boss. Let's get together and let's shut him down. Let's shut mom down. Let's, let's criticize everything that she says. Let's critique her. Why? Because she's an authority. We don't like her. And then it says in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. God was being very merciful to Israel at this point because he was giving them an opportunity to hear from a man who had a ramrod as a backbone. And he said, stop, Israel. You killed Jesus. Turn around. Humble yourself. And they couldn't. They reared their neck back stiff as a gig, as my dad used to say. And just said, you're not telling us what to do. And they got so mad, he wouldn't quit. So they said, let's kill him. Let's take him to a rock party. And they did. They, they stoned him. But you know what happened? They threw their coats down and said, hey, Here's the guy that made it all happen. Saul, you're the man. God is so merciful. Even with the king of the rebels, he was working in the heart of Saul. And there came a point in the future where Jesus knocked Saul down on the sand. And with his face in the burning crystals of sand, he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And that rebel said, who art thou, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And he said, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It is hard for you to push back against my merciful reminders that you're not God. You're not in charge. I'm God. Do what I say. Hey, I don't know about you. Have you, been, have you felt those pushes? Sometimes they come in the form of other humans conversations, and words that you know are true, but they hurt and you hate them. Thank God for those prods. Thank God for those reminders. You know what God's doing? He's saying, I want you to be a better person. I want you to go into the land of victory. I want you to live like a Philadelphian in Laodicea, and you can do it. But you got to listen to hard stuff, and you got to trust me more than your own heart, and you got to stop your ears to the crowd instead of stopping your ears to God. You got to listen to his words. You got to believe what he says. And if you'll do that, you will have victory. God is going to help you through this. He helped Saul. And because he helped Saul, 
You and I are here tonight. He's been merciful to this rebel, I can tell you that. And he's been merciful to you. Caleb had another spirit. Not a rebel spirit. A spirit of humility. A spirit of trust in the word of God. And he was, he was a hard shell guy. Rough, tough, hard to bluff. He was a man's man. But in his heart, he was putty in God's hands. That's what you and I need to be. Tough on the outside to this wicked world. Stand for God against the onslaught of evil. But in our hearts, just a humble child. Having the faith to say, God, if you said it, I believe it. I don't know how in the world you're going to do this thing, but I believe it because I want to live in victory. I want to read one little thing here to you before, as I close. This is it. George Herbert, 1633, wrote a poem called The Bunch of Grapes. Joy, I did lock thee up, but some bad man hath let thee out again. And now, methinks, I am where I began. Seven years ago, one vogue in vain, one air of thoughts usurps my brain. I did towards Canaan draw, but now I am brought back to the Red Sea, the sea of shame. For as the Jews of old, by God's command, traveled and saw no town, so now each Christian hath his journey spanned. Their story pens and sets us down. A single deed is small renown. God's works are wide and let in future times. His ancient justice overflows our crimes. Then have we too, our guardian fires and clouds, our scripture dew drops fast. We have our sands and serpents, tents and shrouds. Alas, our murmurings come not last. But where's the cluster? Where's the taste of mine inheritance? Lord, if I must borrow, let me as well take up their joy as sorrow. Where's the cluster? Where's the miracle change that you're praying God will bring in your life? Where's the breakthrough in your personality? Where's the answered prayer? God has more for you in Canaan. He's got victories waiting. You're going to have to press forward. Believe God. Face your giants. And when you do, you're going to see them fall like so many G.I. Joes. Why? Because we serve a big God. And he has a big plan for you.